0: Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. Today, we are extremely pleased to have with us acclaimed journalist and author David De Jong. Mr. De Jong has covered European banking and finance from Amsterdam for Bloomberg News. His investigative work has also appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg Businessweek, and the Dutch Financial Daily. And today, we will be discussing ground baking release exposé nazi billionaires the dark history of germany's wealthiest dynasties uh, the book has received many many accolades new york times best selling authors have praised it as lucid and damning eloquent thorough and profound and the wall street journal has called it a meticulously researched book and uh, urge all our viewers and listeners as I did, simply to go on to Amazon, click a button, free shipping to almost everywhere in the world. And it, it's really, as you can see, it's a, uh, it's a it's a thick book, but it is a page turner and you open it and before you know it, you're you're finished with it. Um, again, Mr. DeJong, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Ari. It's a pleasure. And please call me uh, David.
0: David, okay. Um, a little bit about your background and how you became interested and the Nazi billionaires.
1: So I was working as as an as a um, reporter on an investigative team for Bloomberg News in New York which covered non non-listed non-stock exchange listed family-owned companies. And I was hired out of graduate school in New York to uh cover it was a newly established team. Um, to cover North America uh, as one of the reporters covering North America. But I was soon asked, because I'm originally from the Netherlands, from Amsterdam, where I was born and raised, to cover the German-speaking countries, Um, Germany, Switzerland, Austria. So I would go, I would be sent from New York. I would go one month a year, uh, mainly between Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh to bloomberg's german speaking or to, to bloomberg's bureaus in german speaking countries and the stories i always came back with were you know these mix of the financial and the business and the historical but what struck me during my reporting there was this you know brazen whitewashing of history by you know world famous brands or and you know consu- globally consumer facing brands like particularly BMW and Porsche, who, you know, maintained global charitable foundations, media prizes, museums, corporate headquarters, academic chairs, in names of, of, their, of their fathers, in names of their, um, in names of the patriarchs, the business patriarchs who had gone, gone on to become incredibly successful in business. But had, you know, also committed war crimes uh, during World War Two and 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 during during the Third Reich. And I thought that was and and that that history they completely glossed over. They didn't mention it anywhere, you know. Even perversely so that you have the BMW Foundation, Herbert Quant, which has a motto: "Inspire responsible leadership." In the name of Herbert Quant, who you know built concentration camps. Oversaw the building of, of uh, you know, of um, oversaw the had the responsibility over thousands of forced slave laborers, including female concentration camp captives. Acquired companies stolen from Jews in France, and you know that was really for me the impetus to to shine a light on this subject.
0: Just by background, a, a little history. What was the economic situation in Germany after World War One, between the two wars?
1: it was it was terrible uh, it was not good um germany was on the verge of bankruptcy um in 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 the early 1920s they had financed world war 1 with these so-called war bonds which basically all of the middle classes had put their had put their savings in and of course following the and and they had banked on uh the german empire being successful in world war 1 and winning of course after losing world war 1 and the you know the draconian measures of, of of the treaty of versailles being imposed on germany um you know the war bonds became useless it became worthless and at the same time you know uh, hyperinflation ensued uh you know billion billion um dollar pardon, billion mark um uh, uh, notes were being printed by the German central bank, and um, you know, uh, hi- hyperinflation was only stimulated uh, by the infl- by the introduction of a new currency. But for the for the main characters in my book, it's actually when they accumulated their 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 initial wealth, because for speculators, for investors, you know, who had a lot of uh, material assets. It was actually a very profitable time because they could, they could, because they could, you know, invest their money in in stocks and stocks were this kind of in this no man's land between liquid and uh, uh, illiquid um, assets and and they, you know, did all and and because, um, you know, just your average consumer investor would flee the market and and prices would get so depressed. Uh, they would snap up companies for on 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 the cheap, so that was I'd say the period 1918-2022. 20, of course, seven years of prosperity followed, and then nineteen twenty nine. You know, uh, October nineteen twenty nine, um, Black Thursday, the wipeout of Wall Street, the, the start of the Great Depression. A lot of German companies had you know were very had, had had financed uh their expansions with with american bonds or had heavily invested in the stock market also in, in in wall street and were completely wiped out and and you know but as a result also just millions of germans uh ended up um you know being unemployed and that was really the start of um you see, in September 1930, the Nazi Party coming in as the second largest party in, in German Parliament out of nowhere, right? Because for five years, since it was turning from to kind of a national socialistic movement into a political party between 1925 and 1930, there was there was there was no success basically. They didn't have any electoral success, but on their platform of railing against the Jews. Against the communists, even against the capitalists, uh, between um, you know, late uh, between I would say early 1930 and, and and the fall of 1930, you know, a campaign run by Joseph Goebbels, later the infamous um, Nazi minister of propaganda, uh, they you know they 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 were able to capitalize on this discontent. Um, within the German public and suddenly out of nowhere became Germany's second largest party. Subsequently, that also opened the door for Hitler and the Nazi party to first get contacts with Germany's big business community because, you know, Germany's businessmen, like the, the successful industrialists and financiers, they were establishment Conservatives, they backed establishment candidates, conservative candidates, uh, like the sitting president von Hindenburg. They did, they found Hitler and the Nazi party fringe, you know, uh, a total fringe movement, these garish, boorish, you know. uh, kind of you know impoverished characters from the from 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 the from the from from the hinterlands you know from the german hinterlands not to be taken seriously but you know when they suddenly gain massive electoral success you know german business was like oh well maybe there's something here and hitler himself did not have any kind of meaningful contacts to to the big big two business to german business community so that really opened the door but they did not start Supporting Hitler until after he had seized power in, on, in January in late January 1933. That's when they implicitly and explicitly fell in line.
0: Uh, once Nazi Germany is in power and um, it starts taking control of the economy, mm-hmm. what was the Aryanization of German Germany's businesses, and what to what extent did the Wealthiest dynasties, the billionaires play
1: in that policy. So let's let's first give a, a definition of what ironization was, because it's such a perversely cynical term. But it is to remove the the the, the Jewish aspect of ownership from an asset, whether that is company shares, you know, um, uh, real estate. Jewelry, um, land, art—you uh, name it. Any kind of asset with with re- any kind of relative value, um, to for it to you know, Aryanization is that process to remove the uh, the the aspect of Jewish ownership from that asset. And it really started ramping up. So the way it developed was Hitler initiates mass rearmament, of which already uh, my. Uh, or the main characters in my book, um, uh, greatly profited profited from many industrialists and financiers because you suddenly have billions of Reichsmark flowing into their coffers um, and into their factories to produce armaments in in violation of the Treaty of of Versailles. He goes public with that in, in early 1935. And of course, with the introduction of the Nuremberg race laws in September 1935, uh, the persecution of, of of Jewish German citizens of Nazi Germany is 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 heavily ramped up. Aryanization was 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 one massive aspect uh, of that, um, and it was you know it initially had the veneer of a legal business transaction, where Jewish business owners or Jewish business families would be put under would be coerced. By either by the state or by their competitors, by fellow business, by, by, by uh, fellow German business owners and entrepreneurs to sell their companies or, 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 or whatever assets they can do they owned um, uh, far under market value. But what all, was also often the case, and increasingly became so as as persecution ramped up, was that you know uh, Jewish uh, Jewish business families, uh, Jewish families wanted to sell their assets at fire sale prices because they wanted to leave, uh, wanted to flee, uh, leave Nazi Germany as soon as possible, and they needed money to. They need to raise money to get out because, in addition to Aryanization, not the, the the Nazi regime had put in this. So-called Reich Flight Tax, uh, which basically, in order to to be in order to be able to leave the country, you basically had to, uh, um, you know, you, you there was a ta- there a heavy tax was imposed, um, and you basically already had to give up all of your assets just in order to 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 immigrate or to to be able to leave, um, and. Um, you know, initially at the veneer of a legal business transaction. As the 1930s ramped up, you know, and persecution ramped up, um, and the 1930s uh, evolved, um, the you know it 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 devolved into outright um, theft and seizure of of Jewish-owned companies and 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 assets, um, where they were just you know where they were just stolen, outright, which was of course a practice that you see continuing um in uh in during World War Two where of course companies uh owned by 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 you know non-Jewish entrepreneurs and businessmen in German occupied territories also get get seized and expropriated uh, outright. Now in the five families that I write about um which are still today Germany's wealthiest business dynasties you know they They would, uh, for example, one of the families I write about, which co-founded Allianz and Munich Re, two of the world's largest insurers uh, back then and and today, you know, they also owned a private bank uh, called Merck Fink, and they uh, were able to acquire the Rothschild Bank in Vienna, uh, Austria's largest private bank at the time, and the Dreyfus private bank in Berlin. One of Germany's largest private banks at the time, at you know fire sale prices after their owners were either put put imprisoned by the SS, uh, as in, in the case of uh, Louis Rothschild in Vienna, um, uh, or and coerced to sell over all his assets, you know, um, one of the largest art collection in in, in Austria. Uh, largest real estate holdings and in addition to his, his his family's private bank or in the case of, of Willy Dreyfus where um, August von Fink, one of the uh, antagonists, one of the main characters in my book, coerces him to, to sell his private bank, his family's private bank at a much lower price, uh, demanding all these write-offs on the balance sheet, etc. in order to get a, a better price. Um, and that is, is something that you consistently see um, with all the families I write about or with all the business patriarchs is that they, uh, you know, basically through coercion, more often than these families having the intention to sell through coercion, uh, buy up uh, competitors, uh, companies uh, on the cheap. i
0: get, getting to some, some examples of the protagonists. Uh, Who was Gunther Quant and what was his role in the
1: Nazi economy? So Gunther Quant was the patriarch of the Quant dynasty, which today is still Germany's wealthiest dynasty because one branch, there's two branches, one branch controls the BMW group, which consists of BMW, Mini, Rolls Royce. They own 47% of it, uh, two of Gunther Quant's grandchildren. And that makes them... Uh, not only Germany's wealthiest family, but also Europe's wealthiest family, and one of the world's wealthiest uh, families. So, Günther Kwan came from a uh, textile-producing family outside of Berlin, um, and he um, basically made so much money, or his family business made so much money during World War One, producing uniforms uh, for um, the imperial, for the German Imperial Army. And he par- parlayed that money and said, "Well, I'm now striking out on my own. I'm, I'm moving to Berlin with my family and um, um, starting out as an as an investor, or basically as a kind of as a corporate raider." And he did that very successfully. He was able in the 1920s to take over two massive global companies. At one hand, um, um, uh, AFA, which was a battery company, which today is better known as Varta, which still produces batteries, and including. Um, the batteries for uh, AirPods um, and at the other hand he uh, took over DWM which was a massive global arms uh, company and of course when when um, rearmament started he was extremely well positioned uh, to profit immediately from the Third Reich because um, he controlled one of uh, Germany's largest weapons producing companies um, and produce such iconic arms as the the Luger and the Mauser pistol, uh, among many many uh, many other weapons, um, and uh, and also of course batteries and accumulators were you know uh, incre- incredibly important as well to the Nazi war machine because uh, you know they produced weapons not only for civilian. Uh pardon, pardon, pardon batteries not only for civilian um, uh, cars and but also for of course military vehicles, submarines, um rockets, uh, etc. etc. Um so as and, and these companies were both quite hamstrung by um, the Treaty of Versailles and it immediately, you know, as soon as Hitler announced rearmament, armament, Gunterquant is there to to profit Massively expand his factories um, and and rake in money. Subsequently, he too, uh, you know, profits massively from Aryanization and expropriation, uh, taking over uh, both um, Jewish-owned businesses for at, at you know far below market value in um, in Nazi Germany, but as well as in German occupied territories. And thirdly, and we 'll get you that in detail in a bit uh, you know uh, exploits uh, almost sixty thousand forced enslaved laborers, including thousands of concentration camp captives in his in his battery and 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 weapons factories
0: uh, and just touching on another family, who were the flicks, and how did they interact with the nazi government
1: so Friedrich flick. Ended up being one of, uh, or ended up being basically Germany's, lar- controlling Germany's largest privately held steel coal and weapons conglomerate. And um, he, you know, he ended up b- being the only one of my main characters in my book to be com- convicted for w- war crimes and crimes against humanity at Nuremberg. At the u.s held Nuremberg succession trials and um, he was you know he he was already Germany's wealthiest man in 1930 uh, controlling um, the, uh, U, the to, controlling the United Steelworks which was only which was only second as the large which was a German conglomerate um, a German steel conglomerate only second uh, was the second largest um, uh, the world's second largest steel conglomerate behind US steel Um but that was essentially he was almost wiped out in 1930 as a result of the Great Depression he was over leveraged um, but he was able to get bailed out by the German uh, government um, for about almost 100 million Reichsmark And with that money, he rebuilt uh, the conglomerate that ended up being not only Germany's largest weapons producer, uh, bigger than Günter Quandt, largest uh, individual profiteer of Aryanizations and expropriations, as well as Germany's largest exploiter of uh, private, as a private businessman, largest exploiter of forced enslaved labor and estimated. One hundred thousand uh, forced and slave laborers went um, through his factories and mines, and he expanded also very much during the Third Reich into uh, brown coal, um, which was you know he, he controlled some of the largest open pit mines in, in Germany. In addition to his many steel factories, and turned uh, weapons factories. So that was who Friedrich Flick was.
0: Could could big business, the billionaires, could they have impeded? Nazi Germany's Aryanization and the treatment of the Jews—had they chosen, or was Nazi Germany the was the ideology was just too strong, and they would have just not been who they were during the war?
1: That's a that's a very good question. The I would argue that they they I always argue they had they had a choice, they had agency. These men, if they did not want to take over a you know a competitor's business uh, at, a, at a at a at a price that wasn't fair or for example they could go out of their way to pay a price that was fair if these families had to sell right i mean that's, that was also an option the, whether they could actually avoid doing it that would probably mean that they would have to leave the country as well themselves if you are not if you weren't going to play by the rules of the nazi regime of the third reich uh you had to leave and and you were going to be expropriated yourself but of course they could if they had any sort of compassion or remorse you know they could have um either paid a fair price if they if they wanted to take over somebody a, a competitor's business, or they could have found ways to to you know reject the takeover, but then you know you were at risk that somebody else, another competitor of you, I mean that, that's how the market works, would take it over at a fire sale price and you would be at a compa- competitive disadvantage. So but yeah, they 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 could they could have done it in subtle ways. I mean I always give the example, but that's in a different context. Uh, a bit, not so much in the context of ironizations, but in general. You have the example of Fritz Thyssen, of now of of, of back then of this Thiessen Steelworks, today of Thyssen Krupp, one of the world's largest steel companies today. Fritz Thyssen was one of the most uh, famous and most powerful German industrialist and was one was, was the exception in the sense that he actually started backing Hitler already in 1925, both as an ideological supporter and as somebody who financially supported the the nascent Nazi movement. And, but in 1939, he made this, you know, he, he became this kind of, he became a Nazi member of parliament, even in a defunct parliament for defunct German Parliament, but in 1939, he did this. He he made this apparently move of conscience conscience that he voted against the German invasion of Poland. As a result, he had to flee to Paris, and and even and and was of course arrested after he um, after Germany invaded France and ended up in a concentration camp, and the and the, and the Steelworks some of Germany's, you know, one of Germany's largest privately held companies was expropriated and was actually put under, in trusteeship, under the right-hand man Friedrich Flick after he left the Flick conglomerate. And uh, this, this very radical SS officer called Otto Steinbrink, who, um, you know, who got into, who, who Managed to own, uh, managed to was appointed to to oversee the Thesen uh, sea works. Fritz Thesen ends up surviving, um, um, you know, uh, ends up surviving uh, the war in in, in 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 concentration camp, and then is actually, in addition to being put in a concentration camp, is then by the Allied forces is then uh, sentenced to three years of hard labor and prison, which is rather ironic because all of the other uh, um, German industrialists who chose to say, or the vast majority of them, go off scot-free and do not get punished, do, did not leave Germany uh, and, 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 and stay to profit, but do not get punished by the allies. So, so you see that no good deed, in a sense, quote-unquote, goes unpunished.
0: How significant was the billionaire's impact on the war effort, and as you alluded to before, to what extent did they utilize forced labor? How important was the forced labor to their businesses?
1: So to answer the first part, to answer the first question, they were incredibly important to the war effort because the Nazi regime relied on private industry, on private businesses for the most part to produce armaments, weapons uh defense material for the Nazi war machine and and and, and steel and, and and natural resources you know there were a lot of kind of state initiative from the Nazi regime themselves which were not uh, which were pretty badly run run um and it, it was really you know it was really you know f- They needed private business to to feed the Nazi war machine. And of course, once Nazi Germany makes the fateful decision to invade the Soviet Union, and all men, all able-bodied men, were called on to to serve at the front, um, you know, a massive labor shortage ensues and as a result, you know, Hitler initiates the, the largest course of labor program that the world has ever seen to date, um, where, you know, an estimated between 12 and 20 million Europeans end up being uh, deported to put to work in, Jer- in, in, in German factories and mines because of the labor shortages. And, you know, roughly speaking, you had uh, – there was a hierarchy – in that, in that, and in the lowest bottom of the rung were concentration camp captives. Um, who you know, the SS made deals with companies, or concentration, the SS which ran the concentration camps made deals with large German companies. Um, you know, companies controlled by Gunther Quant and Friedrich Fleck, for example. Um, um, you know, but also with Volkswagen um Siemens uh BMW Daimler Benz um that they would have they made deals with the US where with the SS where they had concentration camps built uh satellite concentration camps built on their factory complexes where and they would lease perversely leased the concentration camp captives from TSS, six Reichsmark per day for a skilled concentration camp inmate, four Reichsmark per day for an unskilled unskilled, um, concentration camp inmate. Of course, this money would never go to these captives. They were used as slaves, or as is famously described, less than slaves because they were essentially annihilated through labor. And, um, you know, you would have these satellite concentration camps or subconcentration camps on factory complexes. They were guarded by the SS. The companies that requested them were responsible for financing them, for having them built by the SS. The SS guarded them, also would guard then as an extra service the the, the factory complexes themselves uh, and the factories themselves. And, you know... Um, the concentration camp prisoners were 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 held there under the most bomb uh, uh, most horrific circumstances imaginable. You know, no protective clothing. They would be beat at random. They were actually ex- would be executed through hanging or through through being shot uh, at random by the m- most minor infraction. Uh, you know, there was no medical care uh there was barely any uh, there was no adequate food um they had to sleep with 40 50 people in 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 in, in, in barracks um uh, you know et cetera, et cetera, and 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 it and that was you know an estimated you know a million and a half concentration camp captives uh, would end up as as slave laborers in in german um uh, in German factories and mines, then you had the prisoners of war, mostly Soviet uh, prisoners of war who would be which one we could request through the Wehrmacht through the uh, the german army uh, they were also slaves um, of course, they were fell under different uh, set of rules because they technically fell under the Geneva conventions um but they were also treated uh, or as badly, or almost as badly as concentration camp captives. And then, thirdly, and, and there was the majority of um, uh, of forced laborers were those that were de- ra- rounded up in their German-occupied countries, and 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 uh, were deported from all over Europe uh, to Germany regardless of their uh, of their religion or you know or it was mainly they were able bodied men and women and teenagers that ended up being put to work and they were forced in the sense that they didn't go voluntarily um and they would be paid but they would be paid far less uh than the uh, than what a german em- uh, employee would get and they would also be held in, in these so called forced labor camps um, and so those were roughly the three, uh, so to say, uh, categories of force and slave labor.
0: Um, uh, I, I would assume that there are many people who would uh, love to own and drive a Porsche if they could.
1: Um, what's the story behind the Porsche name and company? Uh, not me, Ari. <laughs> I would certainly not want to own and drive a Porsche. Um, so, the Porsche car design firm was was founded in December 1930 by Ferdinand Porsche and his uh, son-in-law Anton Piech um, uh, together with a Jewish man called Adolf Rosenberger who was their commercial director, their financial backer, who was a former race car driver um, uh, who had a lot of technical expertise. And Adolf Rosenberger in July nineteen thirty-five was you know bought out of his ten percent of Porsche shares, far under the market value um of those of those shares. And and you know, it was it was an ironization, it was an early ironization. And not only was he pushed out of the company by his two co-founders, uh, but he was also erased from, from Porsche history, and he ended up um, immigrating to the United States, settling in Los Angeles. Um, but of course, Ferdinand Porsche ended up becoming famous for designing the Volkswagen. But him and, and Ferdinand, Por- him, so Ferdinand Porsche and, and his son in law, Anton Pierre, did not only push out their Jewish co founder and alienize his stake, but they also had the responsibility over the Volkswagen factory complex. Where no Volkswagens ended up being actually produced during World War II, it was became one of Germany's largest um, weapons uh, weapons factories. Where they used, you know, tens of thousands of forced and slave laborers, and and also had these sub-concentration camps and satellite concentration camps on the Volkswagen factory complex. and did many deals with the SS you know had concentration camp captives in, in from from deported in from auschwitz mauthausen uh, sachsenhausen and many other concentration camps and um you know neither of the man neither of the two were you know uh, ended up i mean they ended up in french prison for a while but but neither of them got convicted for their war crimes moreover Ferdinand porsches son, Ferry Porsche, who would later become the big inventor of the Porsche sports car, became an, uh, a voluntary uh, SS officer and surround himself with voluntary SS officers in the boardroom of Porsche in the 1950s and 60s and spewed virulent anti-Semitic vitriol about Adolf Rosenberger um, in an in a autobiography that he published in the late 1970s. And um you know, and and today you have the Ferry Porsche, which was just listed on a stock exchange for seventy billion in Frankfurt. Um um, uh, you know, has a has a has a foundation, a massive global charitable foundation in the name of Ferry Porsche. Um so the example of Ferry Porsche, as well as, as the one of Herbert Quant, which is the son of Gunter Quant, uh, which I alluded to in the beginning, really kind of gave for me the impetus to write this book because seeing this whitewashing going on in the name of Nazi war criminals was really a topic I wanted to shine a light on.
0: You had mentioned this before. Were any of the billionaires held accountable after the war? And what were some of the accusations, if they were accused or if they were convicted, what crimes um, came up against them?
1: So they so as I as I mentioned earlier, Friedrich Flick was the only one of my main characters who ended up being being indicted and convicted at Nuremberg, uh, at the so-called Flick trial together with five other managers for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And he was sentenced to seven years in prison. But that sentence was later commuted to five years, and he was released in 1950 um, in this kind of political expedient decision by the U.S. government in the context of the Korean War and the nascent Cold War and the need for the U.S. to have West Germany as a strong ally. Now, all the other men that I write about, or industrialists and financiers, after the war go through these processes called the so-called denazification processes. Which were you know in early nineteen forty seven as the as the Cold War started, you have this policy decision by the Truman administration um that wants to rebuild that goes from basically a punitive policy of Germany to a to a, you know, let's rebuild West Germany. As a bulwark against let's rebuild West Germany as a as a viable economy, as a strong economy and as a viable democratic state, as a bulwark against the Soviet Union encroaching communism and the Soviet controlled eastern Germany. And that's a policy decision I can understand, but the fatal decision that was made afterwards was that hundreds of thousands of suspected Nazi war criminals and um, Nazi sympathizers were handed over back to West German authorities for these so-called denazification processes, which were, for the most part, were layman trials, which, you know, West German authorities and, 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 and you know, magistrates did not really have any incentive to judge their fellow compatriots on crimes that they had committed themselves, or they had shared in, or or, or sympathies that they held, uh, or still held um, themselves. So, as a result, you know, kind of the myth of denazification ensued. West Germany was never properly denazified, and it was this continuation of money and power from Nazi Germany into West Germany, and this vacuum. Of five years of occupied West Germany, 1945, 1950, where the U.S., particularly, which was leading in, in this, had the ability to actually properly denazify Germany or West Germany, you know, uh, handed it over to the Germans, who had no incentive to do so. And you don't didn't only see that in the in 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 the business world; you saw that in all aspects of German society. You know, in media, in in the medical world, in the legal world, um, you name it, in the cultural world, you know, there was no, there was no denunciation never happened in Germany. Um, it was just a continuation.
0: Have any of the heirs of the billionaires of the dynasties taken responsibility for their company's actions during World War Two? And if so, um, how did that happen? How do they do that?
1: So they haven't actually taken any kind of moral responsibility for history, uh, for the acts of of of, of and the crimes of the Third Reich. What has happened is is the following. Of course, after the war, there were you know a lot of of, of restitution proceedings initiated by well, if they were lucky enough, survivors uh those that had been uh, those whose whose assets had been aryanized or expropriated um and now they want them back but mostly it was the heirs of of, of those that had been uh those whose assets had been aryanized or expropriated um so there was one kind of aspect of 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 of, of proceedings that went on um and, and are still ongoing particularly with regards to art and real estate uh, today, across Europe, and um, you know, men the heirs that live in 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 North America or the UK, um, that are still fighting to get um, to get some of their family belongings back. You know, we're talking 2022. But what happened in 1999? There was this mass class act settlement or mass settlement actually a treaty between German business between the German government under uh, and 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 the. And the Clinton administration, which saw the after many years of negotiations saw a a foundation being established that would pay out about ten billion dollars ten billion u s d to um for surviving forced enslaved laborers. Um, and half of that money would be paid by the German state, and the other half by German business. But there was a clause in that in that settlement in that treaty that said that German business did not have to admit any kind of 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 guilt, uh, wrongdoing, or culpability. So they paid. But they didn't take any kind of responsibility for the crimes. And I think, you know, that's a very important distinction, because to actually take responsibility for your actions, you know, payment is one thing. You know, it's 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 it's, it's an it, it's an aspect of acknowledging of, of, of wrongdoing in a way. Um, but it's not. But it's something different than actually taking responsibility for your actions. So they you know they 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 never took any more responsibility for history and as a result could go on and have 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 been you know could go on pretending like nothing happened and could go on you know maintaining these 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 these, these foundations these charitable foundations media prizes etc in the name of men who were extremely successful in business throughout their lives but also committed horrific acts on a, you know, in, on a systematic scale um, which cost the lives and livelihoods of, um, you know, of, of of millions. And, you know, the heirs today pretend, you know, they want to ignore the subject, you know, they they want to, their, their strategy is, well, if you ignore it, then, you know, it goes away and then we don't have to deal with it, you know, and I think you know the publication of my book six months ago has, has put a lot of uh, a lot of pressure uh, on these families and you know two of the major developments that have come out so far is that one the after the they were already in negotiations but after the the the, the Porsche Pierre heirs and 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 uh, listed Porsche and spun it off out of the volkswagen group about 6 weeks ago in, in in late september um you know they were negotiating they had been negotiating with the heirs of Adolf Rosenberger as to uh, kind of a as a moral and and a moral restitution this kind of historical compensation to have him written back into Porsche company history so they've settled now with the heirs of Adolf Rosenberger and they wanted to clean house uh b- b- before and after the IPO happened Um, And it was one of the, you know, know, they got under immense pressure following the publication of my book because reviews would, with the IPO being announced, you know, the FT review or the Financial Times review or other reviewers would look at, well, how often do we find Adolf Rosenberger, the name of Adolf Rosenberger on the Porsche website, you know, and can you imagine if his heirs would still control 10 billion? of Porsche today. Oh, sorry, 7-10% of Porsche today. So, so that, that's one of the major one one development. The second one is that the BMW Foundation, Herbert Quant, has come under immense pressure and the man who actually initiated that, he ran an interview with me in The Guardian. It's a man called Anton Goodman, who's a British-Israeli who lives in Sur Dasa, uh, not far from where you live, uh, Ari. And he was he was a fellow. He had received money for projects, uh, he had received money from the BMW Foundation, Herbert Quandt, um, for projects um, uh, in um, in the in, you know on the um, um, in Israel and also in the Palestinian territory to kind of bring Israelis and Palestinians closer together. And he was furious for being lied to um, by BMW and the BMW Foundation for having received money in the name of a Nazi war criminal being a grandchild of survivors, you know, and and, and receiving this as he viewed it blood money and have started this massive initiative to get the um to get the, the, the name change for 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 the uh, BMW Foundation Herbert Kwan to be transparent about who Herbert Kwan was initially and now to get the name change saying you should not maintain a global charitable foundation with the motto, inspire responsible leadership in the name of a Nazi war criminal. And he has, you know, he just presented uh, 260 signatories of of other fellows of that foundation globally, uh, which he's accumulated to the BMW board. And he's, you know, he's a very dogged, you know, he's not somebody I would want to be running (laughs) against me. So so he's he's you know those are the two main developments and it's of course such kind of full circle for me because uh, for me it all started in 2014 and 2012 2013 2014 with seeing BMW and Porsche being really kind of the main examples and the families that control them uh, the main examples of this of this of this you know the whitewashing of their family patriarchs of their of their uh, Nazi history. And now, seeing the two main developments uh, with BMW and Porsche really being in, in, the, in the kind of the spotlight. Um, what's
0: next? What's next on your on your plate? I mean, this is relatively new. Any any uh, future plans to expand this? To look into any other areas similar? Well,
1: I'm now yeah. I've, I've, I've and since since, 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 it's, since it's, last November, I've been working as a Middle East correspondent from from Tel Aviv. You know right. and that I'm I have my handfuls with, with a handful with covering the region, covering all of the developments here. Um so for now I do have a second idea for a book which focuses more on the US and also business dynasties and certain, you know, developments there and and um but that's that's for a later stage. That's I, I now wanna, you know, I'm going to Qatar on Sunday to cover uh, geopolitics and business and finances around the world cup, you know, and that is, you know, those are the things that I have my hands full of at the moment. And, and and I think I need a little bit of, of, of lag time before I go into a second book, because writing a book, as I've learned is, you know, I spent four years, I moved from New York to Berlin, spending four years in archives and, and doing interviews and, you know, Completely being immersed in this project, you need a lot of mental space to to pursue a project like this.
0: Now, this has been been fascinating. Again, Nazi billionaires um, with David De Jong and urge all our listeners and viewers um, to uh, purchase the book. And uh, you know, we just got a little bit, a little taste, excellent taste of it. But you know, there's there's really a lot in here. And uh, again, um, David, thank you so much for your time today. Most appreciated.
1: Ari, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.